This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com, enroll today, and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 479. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, learn true, T-R-U-E, learn true, history.com, or brianmcclanahan.com and click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a book plate. Don't forget to purchase any of my books. My latest is The Jeffersonian Tradition. It's an awesome book. You're missing out if you don't have it. Also, Southern Scribblings, which came out last year. There's all kinds of great ways to support the show. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. But as always, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we spread the word and grow the audience. So I do appreciate all your support when you send me requests for uh, show topics. And in fact, this is a listener-generated episode. So I do read your emails. I may not respond, but I do read them. So keep them coming. Now, let me talk about this particular article. And in fact, this was sent to me a little while ago, and uh, I just have now gotten around to it, but not just that. Um, a leftist magazine, or e-zine, webazine, whatever you want to say, ran a pretty substantial hit piece on this particular piece, um, or in conjunction with another part on this piece I'm going to talk about today. So it's worthy to talk about because it riled up some lefties, uh, and I don't always agree with this particular author. In fact, I did a, a podcast on him not long ago. Uh, on another article he wrote, and not just that, I certainly don't agree uh, at all, really, most of the time, with the organization that he's promoting in this particular piece, and I'll talk about that. But I do think it's important in this particular week, we're going to have a lot of good stuff this week, to talk about culture, and this is going to be a springboard to that, to have a discussion of American culture and where we stand today in American society. Is there an American culture? Is there one American people? Does that actually exist? Is there an American nation? These are things that we need to talk about as we conceptualize this idea of thinking locally and acting locally. And so the first three episodes this week are going to focus on that particular point. The last episode this week is going to be a little something different. It's also going to be a listener-generated episode in a way. And I'm going to go through some things that people have asked me about several times, and I'm going to respond through an email that somebody sent me and respond to the different points in the email. So that one's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be on Thursday of this week. And always remember that if you want me five times a week, if you want to get this podcast five times a week, just head on over to abbevilleinstitute.org, and you can get that podcast also once a week as well. So that's the fifth podcast. So all these things are free of charge, by the way. I don't, I don't have a membership or anything like that. If you want to send me money, that's great. The best way to support the show, though, and get great stuff out of it is at McClanahan Academy. I mean, I can't, I can't promote that enough. Uh, if you think that this podcast is good and you like what I say about history, you're really going to like that because it's all history. I mean, this is what my training is in, so it's all classes geared to you as a listener And, of course, when you purchase those classes, you help keep this podcast free of charge. 
I do a little advertising, uh, but I don't have a membership level or anything like that. Everybody's doing that now, right? So everyone has a, they want you to give them five bucks a month or something. Um, I do this free of charge. But just go to McClanahan Academy and get those classes. If you want to send me five bucks a month, hey, I'll, I appreciate it, and I'll, I'll gladly accept it, and uh, and I'm very appreciative of that. But um, also, you can go to McClanahan Academy and get that great stuff as well there. So let's talk about this piece. It's by Glenn Elmers, and it was at theamericanmind.org, and the title is Conservatism is No Longer Enough. Now, he makes some really important points in this piece and things that I agree with. Is pretty good until he gets to the end where he just completely jacks up Harry Jaffa. I mean, he makes him out to be uh, the godsend for American conservatism. And no one did more to undermine American conservatism than Harry Jaffa. Uh, so I think that's the worst part of this whole essay, and I'll get into that. But let's, uh, let's get along with this here and start, start this thing out. So he says, all hands on deck as we enter the counter-revolutionary moment. Let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed or, or in private, many would now agree. Fewer are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. Now, that's an interesting statement. What does it mean to be un-American? You see this now, right? And we'll talk about this. In fact, in the last piece of the last podcast I'll do this week, that phrase is actually brought up again. You're un-American if you do certain things. I think Glenn Elmers is full of it when he says that because he doesn't really understand American culture because what he's saying now is there's two nations. For a long time, there was one American nation. Now there's two nations. One is on the left, one is on the right. But what if there were more American nations than that? What if there were, have always been several nations in America and we've just been coexisting on this continent? And the entire point of the U.S. Constitution was to absorb those differences, not to uh, congeal them into one, even though you have that term e pluribus unum, but to accept these differences and live with them under a strictly limited central authority, a general government. Someone asked me the other day, why do I say general government and not federal government? Because this is what the founders called it. They called it the general government. It was for general purposes only. It could do certain things, trade and defense. That's it. The general purposes of the union, the union of the states. It couldn't do anything else. So if we had a general government that did that, well, then the general government would not be oppressive. And the states could handle these regional differences, these cultural differences, these things that make America really America. And we would be fine. If California could be California, and Alabama could be Alabama, and Massachusetts could be Massachusetts, and North Dakota could be North Dakota, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be better for everyone involved? So Glenn Elmers is already off on the wrong foot by saying some of these things. So I, again, I said I do agree with some of what he says here. I, don't, I just don't mean the millions of illegal immigrants. Obviously, those foreigners who have bypassed the regular process for entering our country and probably will never assimilate to our language and culture are politically as well as legally aliens. I'm really referring to the many native-born people, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. You see, Elmer's is wrestling with something here. He just can't get it. Why? Because he's a Jaffaite. And Jaffaites are so confined to a very narrow worldview, these Claremontists, and that's what he's going to talk about at the end, they just can't see the real problem of their logic. They are tied into a Lincolnian myth of America. That Lincolnian myth of America is the most dangerous and destructive thing going right now. It works on both sides, it works on both parties, and it's dangerous and frankly stupid. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until recently defined America as a nation and a people. And what are those, Mr. Elmers? I mean... How can we define that? 
Now, you could, I, I know what he's getting to here, right? Where we've got a bunch of leftists running around who don't really believe in the founding. They think that all those people are bad and they were all just racist slave owners and they didn't really believe in anything. But we know that there were, even in America in 1776, because the founding generation talked about it, there were already differences. They didn't really like each other. They were simply there in Congress assembled where John Adams called them all ambassadors from the states to essentially defeat the British. And we had 13 independent states as the Treaty of Paris points out in 1783. We had a central government or a general government under the Articles of Confederation. And then we had a more perfect union of what? Of states, but still a union of states. It's very clear this is what it is from the text itself of the document and from the ratification debates. By the way, if you want that position, take my Originalist Papers course at McClanahan Academy. There's three parts. I'm at part four recording that right now as we speak uh, when I'm not doing this podcast, of course. Um, So part four will be out. And then there's going to be a really cool part of that. You're going to get a book called The Originalist Papers. I'm going to be having that for sale um, where I collect all these different public documents, give you a little introduction. I'll have a nice introduction to the entire collection and that'll be available as well. So if you buy the courses, though, you get that part of it without the introduction of the entire project. But you get the essays themselves in the class. So you're already getting part of it by simply buying the classes as I do them. He continues, It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, these non-American Americans, but they are something else. What about those who do consider themselves Americans? By and large, I'm referring to the 75 million people who voted in the last election against the senile figurehead of a party that stands for mob violence, ruthless censorship, and racial grievances, not to mention bureaucratic despotism. Regardless of Trump's obvious flaws, preferring his re-election was not a difficult choice for these voters. In fact, leaving aside the Republican never-Trumpers and some squeamish centrists, it was not a difficult choice for either side. Both right and left knew where they stand today, and it is not together, not anymore. I don't think it really ever has been together. There's never been a unified America. We've always had a sectional America. We've always had differences in America between peoples and different areas. And I'm going to get into this tomorrow, and I'll talk about these things and how that those cultural differences stretch all the way back to the 17th century. I've done this before, but I think it's important to keep hammering this home that you can't say there's ever been an American nation. It never has never has existed. I mean, we've had a couple of times in American history, well, I would say more like one time in American history, where we've had a fairly uh, unified voice when it came to a singular event, and that was World War II. Take that away, and Americans have been divided almost all the time. This is why you had a federal republic. It could absorb those differences. You try to foist... One-size-fits-all government from the left or the right on 320 million people with different cultures, which is what America has always been, and you get a lot of problems. And this is what Glenn Elmers can't figure out. Those who wanted to make America great again may refer to themselves as Republicans, though many realize that apart from Trump, the party does not really care about them. Well, this is true. Trump isn't really a Republican. He never really has been. He ran as a Republican because that was the vehicle that he could get power. The Democrats weren't going to have him, even though Trump sounds a lot like an old 1940s Democrat in a lot of ways. In fact, what Trump really sounded like was 1968 George Wallace, or 1972 George Wallace, in fact. More like 1972 George Wallace, I would say. And I think that's what you're seeing with the quote-unquote populist side of Trump is that early 70s, late 60s populism, which if you go back and you read those platforms, and I might go do that. I might at one point read the American Independent Party platform here on this podcast and show you some parallels between what Trump is, what Trump wanted, what Make America Great Again wanted, and how that was very similar to what was going on with the American Independent Party of the late 60s and early 70s. And Pat Buchanan and all these. So, I mean, this is where Trump would be uh, kind of shading toward populism. But I don't think Trump really ever was a populist. He just capitalized on these things. He understood that there are a lot of Americans out there, as Glenn Elmers is pointing out here. 
that want certain things, but we're not getting them from the Republican Party. Why? Because the Republican Party has always been the stupid party. The Democrats have moved so far left. They still, I mean, look, sometimes they say some of the right things, but they move so far left, they're not going to do any of this stuff. So you've got all these people in middle-class America that feel left out. And that's what Sumner, William Graham Sumner, pointed out in the late 19th century. These are the forgotten men. When we started talking about that, or people were saying these terms in, the, in 2016, 2017, 2018, this was the same thing that had been going on for 100 years, really, since the late 19th century. Because you've got the Republicans interested in the corporate class. You've got the Democrats now interested in essentially uh, not the middle class anymore, but every other group but the middle class. They also like the corporate class as well. That's where they get their money. But the middle class is who gets squeezed. Many may also in some loose way consider themselves conservatives. But among these plumbers, insurance salesmen, gym owners, and factory workers, there's one question you can pretty much guarantee they never discuss with their family and friends. What kind of conservative are you? This question has virtually no bearing on the problems that overshadow their lives. It is still a question, however, that occupies intellectuals, journalists, and the world of think tanks. And this matters, unfortunately, because however sensible and down-to-earth these voters may be, an effective political movement needs intellectual leadership to organize and explain the movement's purposes and goals. Well, sort of. I mean... Uh, that's a very Leninist approach to things here that Glenn Elmers is taking. Is it? I mean, this is what Lenin essentially said. The people can't lead themselves. They have to be led by the party, by the Politburo. you got to get out there and you got to have the intellectuals leading the day and showing them where to go. Now, I mean, we can all say there needs to be leadership somewhere or another, but to say these people just don't think about this, and I mean, we, but we need to tell them what they really think. Well, there is a reassurance in that. I think one of the great draws to Rush Limbaugh for all those years while he was on AM radio was that he did say things that people, it resonated with people, and oh my gosh, somebody thinks like me and they're willing to say it. So there is some of that. This leadership is still divided into, to name a few, neocons, paleocons, not to be confused with paleolibertarians, rad-trads, the dissident right, reformicons, etc., a lot of these labels are a distraction, but before I reject these disputes as mostly irrelevant, let me make a couple of points about why we can't immediately leave this debate behind, and so why an essay like this is necessary. So we say, all oh, this is irrelevant. These things don't matter. Well, they do matter. I would say that there, across all of that, there might be some common ground in some areas, uh, but this stuff does matter, and what matters about it, all those things come down to culture. All of that comes down to culture, and all of it comes down to regionalism. It all comes down to this idea of a federal government, a federal union. What does all that mean? And I think that's where Glenn Elmers again misses the point. The conservative movement still matters because if the defenders of America continue to squabble amongst themselves, the victory of progressive tyranny will be assured. See you in the gulag. On off chance we can avoid that fate, it will only be if the shrinking number of Americans unite and work together. We can't simply mandate that conservatives set aside their differences, no matter how urgent it is that they do so. So my goal here is to show you why we must all unite around the one authentic America, the one, only one, which transcends all the factional navel-gazing and pointless conservababble. Well, of course it's what he thinks, and that's Claremont. If we just got behind Lincolnian nationalism, we would all be saved. What happens if that's the wrong way? It's not the right way. We know it's not the right way. What has happened? Look, Lincoln opened a Pandora's box that the left captured. The Republicans run around trying to attach themselves to the radical Republicans. See, look, it was Republicans that did all these things. Which is stupid because it doesn't, it doesn't get any votes to go their way. It just makes them, it's just virtue signaling, makes them feel better about themselves. But those Republicans wouldn't really be Republicans today. They wouldn't. They would be on the far left, because they were then, and the Republican Party was the far left party, at least that radical wing of it back in the 1860s. I will say the Republican Party, the overall core of the party, hasn't changed. This is what I talk about. There's no real flip. Southerners have lost a party. 
I mean, real conservatives in America have lost a party. What Glenn Elmers is actually referring to here is that real conservatives have ha, don't have a party anymore. They haven't in a long time. The Republican Party isn't going to be their party. Never has been. The Democrat Party isn't their party because it left them. Hence what I said, 1968, 1972, people were already talking about this. They were talking about it before this, too, back in the late 19th century. We had the populist, the real, the, the populist party, the people's party. There was that, well, the parties have left us. Right? There's nothing there. When the Democrats went progressive, when the Republicans went progressive, well, who's left? In 1912, for example, you had all progressives running for president. There was nothing else. There was no choice. So what do you do? Practically speaking, there is almost nothing left to conserve. What is actually required now is a recovery or even a refounding of America as it was long and originally understood, but which now exists only in the hearts and minds of a minority of citizens. A refounding. This sounds a lot like leftist babble. A refounding? Uh, well, I mean, refounding of what? On what terms? You have to... Look... In 1860 and 61, when Southerners left the Union, there was a core belief system there, and it wasn't just race and slavery. I mean, but these people had a common culture uh, to an extent. I think you could even say that there was some disputes. I mean, certainly disputes in the Southern states, and in the North, you had a a commonality, at least to an extent, on some other things as well. But these were independent people, and they had a shared tradition. What is that now? I mean, does that even exist? And he's saying there's nothing left to conserve. People don't. So, I mean, I can kind of agree with this in a way, but we don't need a refounding. You just need to adhere to the central authority the way it is, the way it should be, the way it's all. It's never changed. It's just changed through interpretation, but it's never really changed. The Constitution hasn't been changed except for the amendments to it, and none of those changed the original intent of the Constitution. This recognition that the original America is more or less gone sets the Claremont Institute for the study of statesmanship and political philosophy apart from almost everyone else on the right. You're right. It does, because they're a bunch of doofuses. <laughs> because they, <laughs> they don't understand what they're saying. Because what they're trying to do is, we need a national, national reckoning, a Lincoln-centered reckoning in America. No! Lincoln-centered reckoning in America would lead us to death because Lincoln's response to diversity or to saying, hey, look, let's part ways and live and let live was, I'm going to kill you. And essentially what Glenn Elmer's said in the piece, he's wrestling with this, gosh, maybe we need a separation, maybe we need something, but we got to love Lincoln. So you're going to love the guy that would say, if you try to leave, you're dead. And this is where these people just don't get it. Paradoxically, the organization that has been uniquely devoted to understanding and teaching the principles of the American founding now sees with special clarity why conserving that legacy is a dead end. Overturning the existing post-American order and reestablishing America's ancient principles in practice is a sort of counter-revolution and the only road forward. Well, what principles of the American founding? The Declaration? The second line of the Declaration? No. I can agree with reestablishing principles of uh, the founding if we're talking about the principle of self-determination, the right of self-government. He talks about that a little bit later on. A federal republic, not a national government. I could, I could be on board with that, but that's not what he's going to say here. Knowing what time it is, Claremont was one of the very few serious institutions on the right to make an intellectual case for Trumpism. This is not an accident. Nor is it an accident that Claremont was, has never identified with any of the conservative or liberal factions. When commentators try to label us, they usually just say Claremont conservatives. True MAGAs is another label, occasionally used by those who think Trump voters inhabit yet another enclosure in the conservative zoo. In fact, however, they are not a partisan faction or an interest group at all. No, 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 they aren't at all. No, no, these people aren't factional. No, they're just Jaffaite Straussians who essentially the neoconservatives just 
use. I mean, look, and I know we can get it. Well, I mean, there's there are differences here between neoconservatives and Claremont people. I'm not, and I hear this a lot. But when they're all using the same rhetoric, and look, Claremont, there would be no neoconservatives in a lot of ways with their intellectual juice if it wasn't for Claremont. You see, putting Lincoln at the center of the founding, because Lincoln was refounding America. That's the point. Lincoln was refounding America. Lincoln destroyed the Federal Republic. He destroyed it. So we refounded in 1861. So if you say we want to go back to the founding, well, then we got to get rid of Lincoln. But they don't want to do that. They want to keep Lincoln and somehow think that's the founding. I mean, this is the whole problem. It's why I wrote the essay I did for Chronicles, um, and it's now, I think, available free online right now. That's why I wrote that, because this is the real problem with all of this. On the contrary, their position they represent transcends the conservative divisions by representing the true, nonpartisan understanding of America. Yes, this is a bold claim. I will defend it in a moment, along with the claim that Trump voters are essentially Claremont conservatives. Well, you see, this is he, he actually bashes conservative ink, but conservative ink gets a lot of, again, their intellectual ammunition from the Claremont people. I don't think Glenn Elmers really knows what he's doing here. It's so tortured. It's so sad in a way. The man can't see that what he's advocating is actually destructive. The great majority of establishment conservatives who were alarmed and repelled by Trump's rough manner and disregard for norms are almost totally clueless about a basic fact. Our norms are now hopelessly corrupt and need to be destroyed. Well, I mean, this is true. It has been like this for a while, and the MAGA voters know it. And most of the policy wonks and magazine scribblers do not, and still don't. In almost every case, the political practices, institutions, and even rhetoric governing the United States have become both hostile to both liberty and virtue. On top of that, the mainline churches, universities, popular culture, and the corporate world are rotten to the core. What exactly are we trying to conserve? On a basic level, Trump understood this. I wonder if you said to Glenn Elmers, if you sent Glenn Elmers the American Independent Party platform of 1968, if he would agree with it. Or if he would say, well, I mean, that sounds good. And then you told him who it was. Oh, my gosh. See, the thing is, these people don't really understand what they're saying. Of course, Wallace had his own problems. We can look back at Wallace and say, yeah, I mean, by 1972, he had, he had given up the standing in the schoolhouse door stuff. He said, look, I was wrong for that. I was actually a moderate, which is true. 1960, he was... Uh, he was uh, outflanked by John Patterson because he wasn't segregationist enough. I mean, Wallace had always been sort of a moderate on the issue of segregation. He was making political points there in the 19 schoolhouse yard, uh, schoolhouse door, I should say, uh, at Alabama, University of Alabama. That was political points more than anything else. He said he would never let that happen to him again. And so when he had the opportunity, he went, hard segregation. But of course, he later repudiated that. And uh, I think that's, Wallace is an interesting political figure. But that you look at much of that platform from 1968 or 1972, of course, Wallace wasn't the candidate for the American Independent Party in 72. And of course, he was also shot that year. But you look at the platform, there's a lot of what's in that, that Trump supporters, Trump voters would say, yeah. So, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. I think Glenn Elmers is just, oh my gosh, he just kind of realized these things. At a basic level, Trump understood this. His problem was that he lacked the discipline to target his creative destructive tendencies effectively. But even with greater discipline, he would still have lacked the insight to discern and explain what needs to be destroyed and why. His presidency, especially in a second term, might have corrected this deficiency, except that Trump suffered greatly from an absence of good advisors who could help him make sound judgments. This is partly his own fault, thanks to his bombastic vanity, but partly not, since only a handful of such advisors exist. And these few, moreover, have long been unwelcome in the corridors of power inside the Beltway. Well, this is true. I mean, look, Trump had to go and pick up the people that are the clingers, the Klingons, so to speak, the hanger-ons, these people that are in conservative ink, which he talks about here in a second, the people at Heritage Foundation, the people at these think tanks in D.C., but the Claremont people are no better, let me tell you. And uh, he had to pick these people. Even Look, Michael Anton, who's, I mean, Claremont to the core, right? 
was a good advisor for Donald Trump. And then you got the 1776 Project, which is just conservative ink. That's all it is. Claremont people aren't on the fringe like, like Elmer's wants to think. They're not these fringe, ooh, we're edgy. We're edgy. We're out there. We're going to promote the right things. There's none of that here. Conservatism, Inc. is worse than useless in this regard because it does not understand through, through perpetual study what Trump grasped by instinct. Neither does Claremont. Doesn't understand any of this stuff. Now, I know Claremont has tried maybe to come around a little bit, and this is where Anton was very upset with me that I was bashing the 1776 project because we can't get anywhere by doing the same thing Glenn Elmers is saying here. But this stuff is important. You can't go forward if you're basing your positions on lies. As if coming upon a man convulsing from an obvious poison, Trump at least attempted in his own inelegant way to expel the toxin. By contrast, the conservative establishment, or much of it, has been unwilling to recognize that our body politic is dying from these noxious norms. Keep taking the poison, it advises. A cynic might suppose that many elements on the right have made their peace with and found a way to profit from the progressive project of narcotizing the American people and turning us into a nation of slaves. What is needed, of course, is a statesman who understands both the disease affecting the nation and the revolutionary medicine required for the cure. But no such figure has emerged, and it is unreasonable to pin our hopes on such a savior simply turning up. What then are Americans to do? We don't need a savior. We need to have decentralization. We need to have a real federal republic, and therefore you don't need one man riding in on a white horse or an FDR's case in a white limousine to go save the day. This is what happened in 1933. It's exactly what happened in 1933, and look what that did. You see, this is because Americans have this unnatural desire to have centralized authority. This is Lincolnianism at its worst. This is why it's a real problem. What then are Americans to do toward America? First, we need to set goals. It is not just enough to smash all the bad things. Mindless chaos or anarchy is no way to achieve justice. One of conservatism's huge errors for the last several decades has been to link big concepts like justice and fairness to think big concepts like justice and fairness don't matter. So we allowed the left to own these ideas. Big mistake. Authentic Americans are men, not gerbils or robots. If you are a zombie or a human rodent who wants a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay and go memorize the poetry of Amanda Gorman. Real men and women who love honor and beauty keep reading. <laughs> well, I mean, he's right here about some things. Right? You, have to, you have to understand what you have to preserve. But, I mean, some of this is just kind of silly. Authentic Americans still want to have decent lives. They want to work, worship, raise a family, and participate in public affairs without being treated as insolent upstarts in their own country. Therefore, we need a conception of a stable political regime that allows for the good life. I mean, look, I agree with this. It, we do. I mean, uh, this is what Americans, most Americans are just, they just want to go along. They just want to go to work. They want to make an income. They want to raise their family. They want to go on vacation. They want to have some things they want to have. They want to have a, you know, be able to, to buy things they need and a few things they want. This is basically what Americans want. Have a nice house and a decent car and, you know, have some things. The American dream. This is what people want. He says, the U.S. Constitution no longer works. But that fact raises more questions than answers. Can some parts of the system, especially at the local and state level, be preserved and strengthened? How would that work? How do we distinguish the parts that are salvageable from the parts that are hopeless? How did all this happen anyways? Oh, there's a good question, Mr. Elmers. I'll tell you how. His name is Abraham Lincoln. That's how it all fell apart. The answers to these questions are not obvious. Yes, they are. Having a coherent plan, thinking what American citizenship used to mean, what made it noble and made the country worthy of patriotic love, and how to rebuild its best elements requires input from people and institutions who have given these matters a lot of thought. In other words, don't listen to Claremont, because they haven't really given it a lot of thought. I'm just going to say, they haven't given it a lot of thought. Uh, the Constitution could work. If we just followed the federal system as designed, it would work just fine. If the president was confined to the powers limited in Article 2, if the Congress followed Article 1, Section 8, 
if we had a real embrace of federalism, which is what the entire system is built on, we would not have a constitution if anyone in the ratification period believed that we would get a centralized despotism, if we would get a consolidated nation. The constitution would not have been ratified. Would not have been ratified. So what Glenn Elmers is talking about here is something the founding generation wouldn't even agree with. I can't answer each of these questions in detail or provide the comprehensive political plan we need. Well, of course not, particularly if you're going to be a Claremontist, because then your solution would be stupid. But I can tell you that the Claremont Institute is one of the few places where some answers can be found and where the essentials for such a plan can be developed. No, and that gets us back to the questions of divisions within conservatism. Lots of groups today will tell you what's wrong with society in light of their particular theory or doctrine. Anarcho-libertarians, Benedict Option Christians, Bronze Age insubordinates. The list of quirky responses to America's accelerating decline goes on. Each of these schools has some important points to make, yet none represents or even claims to represent the vast numbers of Heartland voters who still call themselves Americans, who can only be organized around a restoration and explanation of authentic American citizenship, even if that citizenship is now mostly a cherished idea rather than a reality. Claremont does make that claim, and because what the Claremont Institute understands goes to the roots of human nature, justice, and free government, its teaching may prove to be more useful than any other doctrine for recovering a decent way of life, the American way of life. Now, um, I'll say this. What he's talking about here is Jeffersonian, Jeffersonianism, essentially, is what he's getting at. This is what dominated the American heartland. This is what dominated the South, the American heartland. This is it. He's bringing this up. And Lincoln didn't represent that, but he's going to get into it. Part of what makes the Claremont Institute a bit oddly unique, recall its full name, is the belief that political philosophy actually matters for political life. That is why it has always had much more of an academic or scholarly orientation than other think tanks. This focus is not quite so odd when we reflect that the Founding Fathers read and cited quite a lot of political philosophy when they created a novus ordo seclorum and a more perfect union. Well, is it a hard understanding of what they created or a soft understanding of what they created? I mean, which one is it? Is it Beard or is it Balin? Or was it something else? Were they really philosophizing or looking at historical examples? Because they do that a lot. You go through all the different unions and confederacies that were throughout history. This is talked about time and time again in these ratification debates. Nor does it seem to quite so strange when we reflect on what is happening to our nation today, as fundamental concepts of equality, rights, consent, tyranny, and the right of revolution force themselves into our thoughts and our speech. Claremont's devotion to exploring and explaining political philosophy now seems increasingly relevant and even urgent. What, then, is the thing Claremont tries to teach? When I say that MAGA voters are Claremont conservatives and this that this transcends any faction are referring to the idea that the United States was the first nation in the history of the world explicitly founded on the idea that government derives all its legitimacy from the inalienable rights of the people and makes their consent essential to the common good and justice. The idea. The United States is founded on an idea. Well, is it? I mean, if you go back and look at what the founding generation were saying... They certainly thought that that was the point of the whole British Constitution, that there was a bottom-up structure there. They, they thought that. If you look at the English Bill of Rights, there's certainly an acceptance that the king cannot abuse these things. The Magna Carta itself was the king is not above the law. Now, you could say that the virtual representation was a violation of the consent of the governed, but, but... Why would they even bring this up? Because they already believed they had that. They already believed they had that, that that was inherent in the British model. Not that they were creating something new, but they were trying to preserve something old. But you see, Claremont doesn't think that. That's the real problem with Claremont. American constitutionalism established a nonpartisan form of government that was genuinely unprecedented. I mean, some people talked like that in the founding generation. They said these things. There was kind of an American exceptionalism. John Dickinson did it in his 
uh, Fabius letters to an extent. But he also pointed out that what we were doing with the Constitution was something unique, but it was unique because we were putting together the ideas of a federal republic. We would have this Senate, which represented the states, and this House, which represented the people directly, and then you would have also the presidency. You would have some things there that made this a unique system. By saying this, I don't mean that every prior nation or regime was evil, though most had little regard for the welfare of the common man. I mean, did the United States have regard for the common man? I mean, that came down to the states. But even when a monarch or ruling family brought peace and safety to the people, this was simply a matter of luck. Aristotle, the first political scientist, explains in his politics that the best approximation of justice can one can practically hope for is to balance out the different factional interests, which usually boil down to the poor, many, the Democrats, and the rich, few, the oligarchs. Theoretically, you could have a perfectly wise and just king who read purely, ruled purely for the common good, but this was so unlikely as to be hardly worth considering. Monarchy, even in Christian kingdoms, also has a strong tendency to descend into tyranny, a lesson underappreciated by some on the right. Uh, I mean, this is true. He's, he's, that's, a, that's a fairly light summary of Aristotle, but Aristotle's politics is a balance. It's the doctrine of the mean. This is what he talked about. The doctrine of the mean. You have to have a balance between the two. But it wasn't just those factions. What in the American model was, it was a balance between the states and the nation. That was the real balance. America's reconception of democracy offered from what that word has usually meant up to that point, differed from what that word had usually meant up to that point. For Aristotle and other political theorists, democracy referred to the factional interest of the poor against and many against the rich and the few. That simply amounted to the majoritarian rule of the mob. But when the American founders rebelled against the divinely anointed king and established Republican government on the basis of the natural equal rights of all human beings, they inaugurated a truly radical idea. Did they really believe that, though? The natural rights of all human beings. Was it based on natural right? Some of them talked like this, sure. But did they all? No. The rule of the majority in America would be limited in principle to doing what could only rightly be done by all the people. That is, the majority acting in and through the Constitution could not infringe the rights of, a, of the minority. Well, I'm, yeah, the Constitution is there to protect minority, minority rights, and this was something that was brought up over and over again. This is why you had the states that could essentially block things in the Senate. The government derived its authority from consent of all the American people. It created the Union to protect their natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No, they didn't. That's fusing the Constitution with the Declaration. This is what Harry Jaffa did, and that's incorrect. It's incorrect. This is where Claremont gets into trouble because they start putting these things together and they don't work that way. That meant no more kings exercising authority by divine right, no more hereditary aristocracy, no more established churches, and no permanent bureaucracy staffed by unaccountable experts. For the first time, the idea of a social compact uniting all the people would form a truly nonpartisan regime, except that's not what happened. And everyone recognized that. They weren't doing that at all. They recognized there would still be factions, but a general government that could only handle only general purposes would would allow these factions to operate within their states, and then one state couldn't hurt the other. The great difficulty is that this idea only works if everyone agrees, that is, if everyone gets it and acknowledges that we are all fellow citizens, friends ultimately, and that any temporary majority in power must represent the rights and interests of all. This is what made the vital heart of what made American self-government work as long as it did. And it is the repudiation of this idea that animates the progressives or woke or anti-racist agenda that now corrupts our republic, assaults our morality, and suffocates our liberty. But where did that come from? It came from Abraham Lincoln. Because if Lincoln really was interested in this, the South would have gone in peace. The, the, the deep South would have been allowed to go because there were still southern states in the Union. You just want to base it on slavery alone. There were still southern states in the Union. He would have allowed those other states to go. That would have been it. Well, here we get to Harry Jaffa. And, of course, Elmers is writing a book on Harry Jaffa, which is um, why he's, I mean, so, I mean, look, the guy just can't get enough of Harry Jaffa. 
Claremont's intellectual founder, the late Professor Harry Jaffa, explains this and shows why a majority of people living in the United States today can no longer be considered fellow citizens. The moral education of the whole community and the common natural rights of humanity as the ground of the social compact is a necessary condition of a free society, of a polity in which the majority rule may be combined with minority rights. By reason of their understanding of what unites them on the fundamental level, the citizens of a free society, while becoming partisans and even factions with respect to the interests that divide them, will be able to transcend these distinctions when these threaten the genuine interests they share as fellow citizens. It will teach them, above all, as members of a majority, not to permit the endangering of those rights of the minority which ought to be their common care. A free society cannot be neutral towards the convictions of its citizens with respect to the mutual rights and duties. It cannot be neutral towards the morality of citizenship without being neutral toward itself. Without the frequent reoccurrence to, what is to say, frequent re-education and fundamental principles enjoined by the great documents of the American Revolution, no free government can be preserved to any people. These principles as the ground of our patriotism must be defended whenever the nation itself is defended, if necessary, by the sword. But they cannot be defended practically, I'm sorry, politically or by force if they're not defeated, defended first and last in the souls of the citizens. Joseph, Jaffa students, many connected with the Claremont Institute, but at also places like Hillsdale College, this is why Anton calls them the Claremont Hillsdale School, have spent the last 40 years articulating the premises and implications of that somewhat complicated set of ideas. Again, here is not the place to explain this comprehensive political philosophy. That's too lofty for people. The Institute has lots of publications and several fellowship programs that provide different pathways to this teaching. This educational project, to the matter at hand, has been partly a failure and partly a success. It has failed in as much as we did not persuade a sufficient number of citizens to prevent the political disintegration now occurring before our eyes. Excuse me. Success over the long term may still be possible, but it is an open question. In many cases, the ultimate outcome will not be due to a lack of trying. In 1979, the year of the Claremont Institute was founded, Charles Kessler, now the eminent gray-haired editor of the Claremont Review of Books, was a young graduate student in political philosophy at Harvard. In a long cover story for National Review, then in its heyday, Kessler wrote, quote, When the central ideas of our political tradition become blurred and obscured, when Americans no longer understand what it makes that it makes them a people, one people, then they will cease to be a people, and that noble and reasonable tradition will decay into ideology. When that happens, the spiritedness, the private assertion of dignity and independence that characterizes American citizenship is severed from its connection to reason and American self-government collapses upon itself. But we don't ever have, we never have had an American people, ever. It's never existed. I mentioned that 42-year-old essay because it shows how long and how consistently Claremont scholars have been making these arguments. Again, this points to both failures and successes. In terms of the latter, it is not well appreciated today how Jaffa, Kessler, and other Claremont writers played an enormous role in pushing William Buckley, National Review, and the whole conservative movement toward greater focus on and appreciation for the American founders. A good argument could be made that it were not for Jaffa's 60 years of influential scholarship, the New York Times and its allies would not have found it necessary to launch the 1619 Project. You see, this is kind of, this is hyperbole. And it's unnecessary because people were talking about the founders before this point. Claremont didn't do it. In fact, you could say Claremont began distorting the founders. Uh, I mean, this is what Mel Bradford essentially... Mel Bradford completely eviscerated Harry Jaffa over and over and over again. And you see, because of Harry Jaffa and because of the Claremont people, we now have the mess that we're in. Because if Mel Bradford had been allowed to be in his post at the National Endowment for the Humanities and Reagan hadn't withdrawn the nomination, we would have had a whole different trajectory of America. We wouldn't have had the proposition nation nonsense become ascendant. We wouldn't have had Harry Jaffa even matter. You see, the proposition nation, I could say, yeah, it's true. The 1619 Project wouldn't exist because, well, they wouldn't be basing it on, maybe they wouldn't have had that there. You've said the founders are all about all men are created equal. Well, that's not what we get. We see that. Yeah, we agree. This is what the founding is. But where didn't we do it? So see what the Jaffa people are doing. So this is what it's based on, the Proposition Nation. 1619 Project people. Oh, yeah, I agree. The Jaffaites. Well, we got it, though. We got this now. All, all people are equal now. So let's stop there. The 1619 people. No, 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 no. That, 
you, you're not you're not going along with this. You didn't really believe it. The assault two sides of the same coin. The assault on America's history and meaning was deemed necessary, at least in part, because of the work of the Claremont School. Without its decades of advocacy and educational programs, the American founding, the spirit of '76, which of course is <clears throat> decentralization and secession and self-determination, things the Claremont School says is treason. These people are just so confused they don't even know what to do. We're even more distant and unfamiliar today than it already is. The understanding of fundamental principles is also why Claremont may be the only conservative think tank that can continue to carry on its work essentially unaltered in the face of the great revolutionary change we are now experiencing. This is another way of making the point I argued earlier. America as an identity or political movement might need to carry on without the United States. But wait, I thought you said secession was treason. This is what the Claremont people have been saying for years. So you're actually now admitting you were wrong? This brings us back to the question of whether the MAGA voters and Claremont can become an effective political force. To do so will require not only an understanding of the right principles, but also the detailed knowledge and practical wisdom needed to apply those principles to our specific circumstances. This skill or wisdom points to the virtue of prudence, which Aristotle regarded as the comprehensive moral virtue and the defining characteristic of the statesman. In the meantime, give up on the idea that conservatives have anything useful to say, except the fact that what we need is a counter-revolution. Learn some useful skills, stay healthy, and get strong. One of my favorite weightlifting coaches likes to say, strong people are harder to kill and more useful generally. Also, read some books like this one and this one and any of these. So you look at the books that he provides, and um, I, I wouldn't read any of those, particularly the ones on Harry by Harry Jaffa. Don't read those. Don't read those books. You want to read books? Go read Mel Bradford. Yeah, let's go read that. Forget this stuff. Go read Richard Weaver. Read Richard Weaver. Read Mel Bradford. Read I'll Take My Stand. Heck, forget all that. Just read some of the primary documents. That's better. And also consider one of these institutes' fellowship programs. Don't do that. For yourself or a smart young person, you know. It's all hands on deck now. Don't do any of that. That last paragraph is just completely stupid. Don't support Claremont because it's bad. All right, so this was a listener-generated episode. I hope my commentary provided enough uh, of an analysis here. This wasn't a really long podcast. I didn't mean to go this long. But anyways, this piece deserves some attention, and it's going to be the core of what we're going to do the rest of the week. So I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.